morning. Please turn to Romans chapter 7. Romans 7 is our text this morning. When I first began my college education at Oklahoma Christian, uh, I started as an engineering major. And largely, I decided to major in engineering because I was pretty good at math. You know, all through high school, uh, my highest grades were in math. My ACT scores in math were pretty good. Uh, I, I had a pretty good understanding of algebra and geometry and trigonometry. So for my very first class at Oklahoma Christian, 8 a.m., four days a week, I was in calculus. And welcome to college, right? Okay, and when math was all about solving for numbers and, and solving for X, I did pretty well. Okay, suddenly I hit calculus, and I don't know if any of you ever got to calculus, okay? I know lots of you did, but if you got to calculus, you know that they don't have numbers anymore. Okay, and I get to class, I'm like, where'd all the numbers go? All right, it was kind of like I hit a wall, right? I'd done really well in math all through school. All of a sudden I get to calculus, and I can't visualize any of it. None of it's making sense. The teacher's up there talking about all this stuff, and I go, what in the world are you possibly talking about? Hey, I struggled with that class more than any class I've ever taken before or since. Finally, I got to be in the class, and it was by grace, not by works. Okay? You ever have an experience like that? You ever feel like you're moving along at a good clip, and then suddenly it's like you hit a wall and nothing makes sense anymore? Okay, I tell you that because a lot of commentators feel that way when they hit Romans chapter 7. Okay, this is just a notoriously difficult chapter to get your mind around. Okay, in fact, I promise you, if I went to a church and I saw that the preacher was preaching Romans 7, the law and sin, I'm probably pulling my phone out right then to start doing something else. This just sounds awful. Okay, just stick with me for a minute. Don't pull out your phone. Just because I would do that doesn't mean it was the right thing to do. All right. As I read through Romans, I think, okay, Paul, you know, we're tracking with you when you talked about how everyone's sinful in the first couple of chapters. Okay, we followed along just fine when starting in chapter three, you said the gospel of Jesus is the solution to sin and the fulfillment of the covenant. Amen, Paul, I'm right with you. Okay, chapters 5 and 6, contrast Adam and Jesus. That all sounds good. I'm with you. Then suddenly we hit chapter 7, and it's like a sucker punch you never saw coming. Okay, it's hard. Literally, one of the books I was reading this week in my office about getting a handle on Romans, I'm reading through it, and the commentator goes through. He goes, okay, now we're at chapter 7, which is so out of place, I just can't even deal with that, so let's skip straight to chapter 8. It's like, that's cheating. You can't do that. Okay, so I spent a lot of time this week thinking, how do we teach Romans chapter 7? Okay, and if you remember the last several weeks we've spent in Romans chapter 6, we went through a pretty detailed look at the different sections of that chapter, looked at each passage, looked at each verse of Romans chapter 6. I've decided not to do that with Romans chapter 7. Okay, I think we can lose the forest for the trees if we just go through this verse by verse. So instead, what I want to do is try to get a picture of this forest, okay? Because I think it's important. I think it matters for Paul's overall argument in the book of Romans, okay? So we're going to do the whole chapter in one week. Um, I encourage you to go read all the verses at home because we won't read them all this morning, okay? But this is probably more important and more applicable than we think on first reading. Okay, I think his basic argument happens in three moves. 
Okay, the first part of Paul's argument, Romans chapter 7, verses 1 through 6. Okay, and I think in 1 through 6, he says, okay, you used to be married to the law, okay, but because you have gone through a death, that's no longer the case. Now, you're married to the messianic people. Okay, and that's six verses summed up in my two sentences. All right, think about it. When the children of Israel went through the Exodus, when they left Egypt on their way to the promised land, their very first stop was at Mount Sinai. At Mount Sinai, God gave them what Paul here refers to as the law, right? Capital L, law. Starts with the Ten Commandments, includes a whole lot more regulations and things they are supposed to follow. These are teachings and instructions for how Israel was supposed to live as a chosen, covenant, redeemed nation living in the promised land. Okay, the law was a gift given to us by God. God said, here's your constitution, here's your charter, here's your ethical standards for how you are to live as my people. God gave us the law. We went through this big covenant ceremony through which we were bound to the law. And God, God says, I am a holy God, but I will dwell amongst you even though you are an unholy people. Okay? And prior to Jesus, if you wanted to be part of God's people, it meant getting married to the law. Okay? You remember the rich young ruler who comes up to Jesus and asks, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What does Jesus say? He looks at him and he says, follow the law. Okay, but now, Paul says, after Jesus, things have changed. After Jesus, we have gone through a death. Okay, you remember in Romans 6 how we talked about going through our baptism as a death, burial, resurrection? Okay, don't forget that. We've gone through a death. Because of that death, we've joined to the death of Jesus. Okay, so Paul's big point, the opening of chapter 7, is since we have died with Jesus in baptism, we are now married not to the law, but to the people of the Messiah. Okay, we now live as the Jesus people. You can either be joined to the law or you can be joined to Jesus. If we are baptized, we're now joined to Jesus. Fair enough? Verse 5. For when we were in the realm of the flesh, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in us so that we bore fruit for death. But now, by dying to what once bound us, we've been released from the law so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. All right, and that sounds great. Okay? I don't want to live my life according to the law of Moses. I like the idea of living by the Holy Spirit a whole lot better. Okay, but I've got to be honest with you this morning. Uh, while I'm sure that the Jews raised in synagogue needed to hear this, I'm not sure how much of a difference it makes to me living 2,000 years later. Okay, any of you worried too hard about following all the Old Testament law of Moses? Any of you worried real hard, other than Robbie? Okay, anyone worried real hard about making your sacrifices on time? Anyone worried about letting the land lie fallow in certain seasons because God said to do it that way? Okay, anyone worried about eating pork? or touching a dead body, or having a blue thread in the tassels on the ends of your garments. Okay, I had some really good pork last night. I'm thankful that I can do that, that I'm not bound by the law anymore. Okay, your church experience would be very different if we were slaughtering cattle up on the stage this morning, right? I'm glad we don't do that. 
Okay, so we don't follow the law any longer. We haven't followed the law for a very long time. And if that's all that Paul was doing in Romans 7, I think we would be right to skip it and say, well, that was relevant for those people, but that was a long time ago. It's not relevant for us anymore. Okay, but notice Paul doesn't stop here. Okay, notice his next point, starting in verse 7 and going through 13. Paul says, the law is good, but it also raised an awareness in me of sin. Okay, Paul's very quick to point out the law itself is not sinful. It's not bad in any way. Israel always thought of the law as a great blessing. Okay, read the Psalms that talk about the law. It says the law is perfect. The law refreshes my soul. Lord, I long to meditate upon your law day and night. Hey, the law is good. Israel always thought of the law as a great gift from God. Okay, God has given this to us. It enables us to live a life that is better than all of those poor pagans living around us who don't know any better. Okay, we're not like those poor people who had to figure out how to settle disputes and how to treat people, how to treat the land. Our God gave us all that. He loved us so much. He gave us this gift. The law is good. Okay, but one thing the law did that wasn't good is that it raised in us an awareness of sin. Okay, notice starting in verse 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sinful? Certainly not. Nevertheless, I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of coveting. For apart from the law, sin was dead. Okay, it's like the old adage. Uh, if you want something done right, forbid your kids from doing it, right? Okay, it's like when I was a senior in high school, uh, and I remember pretty early on in the year, the teachers told us, they gathered all the seniors, and they said, there will be no senior prank this year. Okay. We hadn't been thinking about a senior prank. We were now, right? A few months later, there's a whole truck full of wild chickens running through the school building, right? They kind of asked for it. And that's kind of what rules do. They make us think about breaking them. Okay, like when the very first story of Scripture, God said, you can eat from any tree in the garden, but don't eat from that one. Okay, what's the very next story we all know we're going to read even before we get there? It's a story about how they ate from that one and then the consequences, right? That's what rules do. That's who we are as people. We are rule breakers. Okay, verse 13 sums this up very nicely regarding the law. Notice 13. He said, did that which is good then become death to me? By no means. Okay, the problem was never the law. God's law was good. The problem is, I'm not good enough to keep it. Nevertheless, in order that sin might be recognized as sin, it used what is good to bring about my death, so that through the commandment, sin might become utterly sinful. All right, here's the part where commentators start to struggle. Okay, here's the part where you can see even the experts going through all this have a hard time understanding what exactly is Paul saying. Okay, because starting here, Paul gets pretty deep and, and follow this argument carefully. Notice starting in verse 14. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, 
sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. Okay, and I can't help but thinking this sounds a little bit like the Dr. Seuss books I read my kids, right? And if you have a hard time understanding what Paul just said, don't worry, this is confusing to everybody. Okay, but notice how Paul ends this section, then we'll break this down a little bit. Verse 21. So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ, our Lord. All right, here's the, the part I want us to really pay attention to. This is where I think Paul's argument is all leading up to this point through this entire chapter. I think part of the cosmic scope of all of this is that Israel could finally be the place where sin was fully revealed, and only when sin was fully revealed could Jesus then defeat it in that place. Does that make sense? Okay, read that again, okay? Take a minute to think about that line, okay? This all goes back to the covenant. This goes back to all the things we've talked about since the very beginning of Romans. Okay, the world was fundamentally broken in Genesis 3. Starting in Genesis 12, God calls Abraham, makes a covenant with him to fix what is broken. In Abraham's family of descendants, the Israelites, we see the full blooming of sin in spite of the fact that they knew God. They knew how to be righteous. They had every advantage and every opportunity. Okay, when a baby pitches a fit, you don't hold it against the kid. Why? Because they're a baby. They don't know any better. When my seven-year-old pitches a fit, do I approach it differently? Yes. Why? He's old enough to know better. In the same way, Israel had every advantage of knowing better. They had the law. They had the prophets. They had their priests. They had the very words of God chiseled in stone given to them from Mount Sinai. They didn't have to work at it. They didn't redeem themselves. God redeemed them, gave them a land they didn't have to work for. He gave them every single advantage. But how badly did Israel fail? Okay, by the time of Jesus, we had lost 10 of the 12 tribes. They're just not there anymore. Okay, we'd been conquered by more foreign armies than we could count. Okay, the high priesthood of Jesus used to be descendants from Aaron, right? In Jesus' day, it's just passed on around the aristocracy of Jerusalem, and it's just a political post. They don't think anything religious about it, hardly at all. Okay, there's no respect left for any of the religious structure. The king now is a guy named Herod who wasn't even an Israelite, and the emperor over him is a pagan living in Rome. Israel's history is epic failure after epic failure, and all of it is directly traced back to their inability to follow God and be holy. 
Israel knew better and failed anyway. And yet because sin reached its peak amongst the very people who should have known better, Jesus, as the representative Israelite, was able to be the Messiah. He could defeat sin in the heart of Israel itself. By Israel being the holders of the covenant and the bearers of the law, they could demonstrate how desperately we needed a Savior, a Messiah, a Redeemer, a Rescuer from sin. If there's one thing you can write down from our lesson this morning, if none of this is, is tracking with you and you want to get the one takeaway application point from all of this, it's this that follows, okay? No matter how righteous the rules... And no matter how hard we try, we can't be holy. Okay, that's Romans 7. No matter how good the law is, and no matter how much effort you put into it, we can't be holy because we are an unholy people. You know where Christianity is growing? Okay, it's growing just a little bit in America, but not as fast as our population is growing. In Europe, it's on the decline. You know where Christianity is growing? It's in the third world. South America, Africa, lots of parts of Asia. Christianity is growing and it's growing very rapidly. Do you know why? Because in order to embrace Christianity, you have to know that you need a Savior. Part of our problem in the first world is we tend to think of our own self-reliance. I can get myself where I need to go. I can do everything on my own. If I try hard enough and work hard enough, I can get there. And if we take that attitude into our religion, we'll never find Christianity. Christianity is about humbling ourselves and recognizing I can't get there on my own. I got to have a Savior take me there. Before we can start to mature, before we can be a holy people, we have to recognize our own inefficiency, our own lack of ability to live righteously. You can have all the best rules and all the best intentions, and you will never get yourself there. Back in 1999, on Halloween, uh, there was a full airplane that took off from JFK International Airport in New York. It was flying a routine flight to Cairo, Egypt. Shortly after takeoff, the relief first officer waited for the pilot to leave the cockpit. After the pilot left, the co-pilot disengaged the autopilot. He moved the throttle levers from cruise power to idle, cutting off the engines. The airplane began to pitch nose downward and then descended into a free fall. In the final moments before impact, The horrified pilot dashed back to his seat and battled the co-pilot for control of the plane. While the pilot was pulling back on his controls, desperate to bring up the nose of the 767, uh, the suicidal first officer pushed his own controls forward in order to keep the jet diving. That day, Egypt Air Flight 990 crashed into the Atlantic Ocean south of Nantucket, Massachusetts, killing 217 people. Don't press this metaphor too hard. All metaphors break down at some point. Uh, But there are two pilots in your life. Uh, There's the pilot of sin. There's also the pilot of the spirit. And which one gets controls of the controls uh, gets to determine the course of your life. We have to get over this idea that we are the ones steering our own plane 
and realize there is somebody at the control steering us. It's either the brokenness of sin that steers us, or it's the power of the Holy Spirit steering us the right way. Starting in the next chapter next week, we will get into what it looks like for the Holy Spirit to be the one in control of our lives. But before we're ready to give up control to the Holy Spirit, we've got to start with the recognition that no matter how hard I try, I can't steer my life right by myself. We have to have a Savior do that for us. And that's the beauty of the gospel. Uh, at this point in our service, we're going to sing a few verses of an invitation song. Uh, during the singing of this song, I'll be down front. One of our shepherds will be down front. And if you don't know about that gospel of Jesus, if you've never taken hold of that for your life, we would especially love the opportunity to sit down with you, study in God's word what it looks like to make Jesus truly Lord of your life. Uh, during the singing of this song, this is a time for you uh, if you have any need. And before we sing that song, I'd like to speak a word of blessing over us. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you, be gracious to you, and give you peace. Let's stand and sing.